0: Into me, chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. This is God to Cyrus. 1 through 8. Thus
1: says the Lord, to the anointed, to Cyrus, Cyrus. whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, to loose their belts for him, to open doors before him, that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you, and love you, and talk to place I will break in pieces the doors of the bronze, and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, and the in secret places, that you may know that it is God, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name, for the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen. I call you by my name. I name you, but you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God.
2: I equip you, though you do not know me,
1: that the people may know, from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me.
2: I am the Lord, and
1: there is no other. I form light, create darkness. I make well-being, and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. And let the clouds rain down righteousness.
0: Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, am the Lord. All right. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Now, you know what we said yesterday. Anointed one is the English. In Hebrew, anointed one would be what? Messiah. And in Greek, Christ. So he, thus says the Lord, to Cyrus, his Messiah. To Cyrus, his Christ. That's amazing. I mean, what in the world is Isaiah doing calling some pagan foreign king God's Messiah? That couldn't
2: be true, could it? It is, too. Um well the,
1: the term the anointing like Start about something much more broad, as in, like, they just anoint people. Past, past. And then, based on the scriptures, and there's this theme where the anointed really was, there wasn't one particular person. So, by turning Jesus, the anointed is this great title. Um, but, it does, but it's not limited to just that thing. it's also just
0: description. That's exactly right, and that's a good point. The fact is, Cyrus is not the firstborn king. To be anointed by God. That would make any of you think about anything? Yes. First Kings 19, 20, 19, 16, and 16. God tells Elijah to anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Jehu king over Israel and Elisha to be proper in your place. So there was already the command to anoint Haziel as the uh, next king of Aram. God is in the business of raising up kings for various nations, not just for his own people. And really, Cyrus is not the only pagan king to have some sort of exalted terminology given to him. Do you remember in Jeremiah what God kept calling Nebuchadnezzar? Do I remember the uh, term God used for Nebuchadnezzar several times in Jeremiah? My servant. My servant. That's exactly right. You know, for example, Jeremiah 25.9, I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. And again, in Jeremiah 27.6, Jeremiah 43.10, so that's uh, 25.9, seven six, and 43.10 of Jeremiah. He calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. The fact is, God can use anybody's God can anoint anybody as king. God can make anybody to serve his purposes. I do believe that we ought to see a parallel here. I believe that there is a sense in which the redemption of Israel under Cyrus, a political, material redemption, was the foreshadowing of the great spiritual redemption. Under Jesus, the ultimate ideal Messiah, anointed one. Okay, and so the, really, I think using similar terminology just sort of helps us see the parallel. And uh, what he says is, you know, I, I he says to Cyrus, whom I have taken by the right hand. To subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him that, uh, so that gates will not be shut. God is the one who, who led Cyrus out onto the stage of history, who engineered his triumphs, who opened the doors for him. He tells him, I will go before you. I'll make the rough places, I'll shatter the doors of bronze cut through the iron bars. God is going to take away the barriers and the obstacles so that Cyrus can conquer the world. God was with Cyrus. God was opening the doors for Cyrus. He was giving him the treasures of darkness, the hidden wealth of secret places. Um, And so he he was going to actually provide wealth for him. Cyrus's relentless advance and conquest of the ancient world did not reflect his military expertise. It reflected God's power in opening the doors for him. Comments and thoughts to that point in the middle of verse 3. Yeah. That's such a
1: good point about that the reason why he has his money or he's able to do anything successful is because God has a lot of... I think that's the same point in, uh, in Daniel chapter, I think, 5 with Nebuchadnezzar, that you know God showed them that the only reason you were... I think it's Daniel 4, right? Yes, four, four. Uh, the only reason you're a king and you're able to do it is not because you're very smart because I made you a beast and your kingdom is still standing after
0: I made you a beast so it really is not you but uh, the other uh, because of me that's the whole point of the book of Daniel almost every chapter says that one way or the other that's exactly right It's it's the thing we've got to see is nobody has power in themselves you know, if we're successful at anything, who gave us the ability to have that success? Who opened the doors for us? Who, who provided the context and the environment and whatever else? It's the Lord. You we know, got to give credit to Him. You know, it's, it's this parent standing over their little kid in the kitchen, You know, working with them to measure out the everything just right and holding their hand to dump it in the bowl and, you know, holding their hand to get them to stir it and all that and, you know, providing the recipe and getting the ingredients and doing all of this and turning on the oven and, and, you know, so forth and so on. So this little kid made the cookies. (laughs) You know, a little kid thinks, man, I'm really good. I need these cookies. You know, I mean, we are just so foolish. What must we look like to God when we go around patting ourselves on the back for how competent and capable and whatever we are and the great accomplishments we've made? The Lord's looking at us and thinking, (laughs) if you only knew, wouldn't it have been so much easier for God to have done this all himself? Dispense with mankind, just do it on his own. It's usually easier for the parents to do it by themselves and not involve the children. Why do parents get their little kids to help them in the kitchen? Just to give them a sense of accomplishment. Because they want to be a blessing to their children and make them feel a sense of involvement and train and work, through work with them, not because they just couldn't do it if they didn't have their little kids help. You know, we need to remember that. Other thoughts?
1: Is there any um, evidence in Daniel or otherwise that Cyrus actually read this?
0: I, I don't know. I mean, you've got some statements like in Ezra 1, um, where Cyrus uh, issues the decree and he says... In verse 2, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, that may be an indication that he read that. Or it may be an in- indication that he had some sort of uh, Jewish help to write the decree. Uh, or it may be what he always said. I don't really know, it, but it's possible. Well, what was God's purposes in giving this success to Cyrus? He really shows three things here. In 45.3, he says, So that you may know that it's I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. God gave success to Cyrus so Cyrus would know who he was. And secondly, in verse 4, for the sake of Jacob my servant and Israel my chosen one, I've also called you by your name, though you have not known me. So God equipped him for this task for the benefit of Israel to redeem Israel from captivity. Now, it's interesting here. God is using Cyrus, even though Cyrus doesn't know him, to be used by God necessarily mean that, that the person knows it or consciously cooperates. God can use Balaam's donkey. Tell me Balaam's donkey knew anything about what was going on. God can use unwilling servants without them even being aware of. God uses Satan all the time. Satan has no intention of that happening. But God outwits him and uses him. So God uses Osiris, who didn't even know him, to bless his people Israel. Um, and then he says in, in verse 6, that men may know. For the rising to the setting of the sun, that there's no one besides me. So he also did that to cause the nations to recognize him as the true God. So God using Cyrus for three purposes: to show Cyrus who he was, to redeem his people Israel, and to reveal himself to the nations. And so all of this goes back to our theme: seeing who God is. Verse 5, I'm the Lord and there's no other. Besides me, there's no God. You know, I am the Lord and there's no other. At the end of verse 6, there's no one besides me. The one who forms light and creates darkness. You know, God does it all. We need to see God as the great God, as the only God, as the God who ultimately is in charge. And so we ought to be impressed by the greatness of God through what he does inside us. Comments and questions through verse 7? Three of the three things that he uses Cyrus for? Yeah, to show Cyrus in verse 3 who he was, to redeem Israel in verse 4, and so that men might know who God was in verse 6. Other thoughts?
1: Dusty. I love how um, he repeats, like, I am the Lord over and over, and you see this a lot throughout uh, throughout this word in Leviticus, you see, uh, specifically, I think of Leviticus 19, how he repeats, for I am the Lord over and over and over, just reiterating the fact of you know, who he is and the greatness that he is. Then you see in our lives today, every single Sunday morning, we take the Lord's Supper helping us to remember he is the Lord. He has saved us. He has always been there for us. It's a recurring theme throughout His Word, throughout our lives. He is the Lord, and He should be praised. Amen. Rick.
2: Uh, so I'm just going to make a prediction it's,
1: it's pretty much incontrovertible. Right? It's the guy that's it's got uh, So I don't know much about the, this kind of controversy, but I mean, I'm sure there are people today who discount this entire portion of Isaiah say it was written by a person, you have to do that. Yes. What's
2: a simple, simple response to
0: some of the defense? Yeah, Brigham's got a good question. The skeptics dissect Isaiah, and they say that 40 to somewhere, 40 to 55 usually, I think, was written by Deutero-Isaiah, and 56 to 66 was written by Trito isaiah So you've got 1st Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, and 3rd Isaiah. And uh, I think the main purpose for doing that is to postdate the prophecies. Since there's really no God, and God can't really predict the future, then he couldn't have known it was Cyrus because man can't know that, so this had to be written after Cyrus came along. And they do that consistently with prophecies in the Old Testament about the Old Testament period. They do that strongly with Daniel. They say Daniel was written in the Maccabean period because how else would he have known all the details of that period? Now, there's several things to say about that. One is, if you say that about Isaiah, then you are saying this is an intentional fraud because this part of Isaiah is using this as evidence of God being able to predict the future before the time. You can't just say this was something where everybody understood this was written by somebody else. Because he's specifically using this to argue that God controls the history. God controls the future. So if you say that, you're not just saying this was some sort of a righteous person writing. You're saying this person was trying to palm this off as counterfeit evidence, knowing that had already happened, but trying to make it look like God could predict the future. That's one thing that you need to realize if you do that. The second thing I would say is there are prophecies in Isaiah that everyone has to accept were prophecies before the fact. And that is all the prophecies about Jesus because we just can't post date Isaiah, after the coming of Christ. We've got documentary evidence of the the scrolls of Isaiah existing before Christ, both from the Dead Sea Scrolls and from the Septuagint translation that was written uh, long before Christ. And so there's something that, there's no way they can deny that. Um, It becomes really difficult for them to deny Daniel for several reasons. Now, you know, I mean, to try to deal with this prophecy, I think the thing you do is just try to show the consistency of the message of the book and show the unlikelihood that this is actually just spliced between three authors. I think there's several things you could show about that. Still in all, I don't know that I would try to go there and spend a whole lot of effort on that. If somebody wants to be a skeptic, well, just explain the prophecies about Jesus. You know, if, you, if you're if you finally willing to accept the evidence for God, and that he can predict the future, then there's no reason to post it. That's what I said. Somebody else want to offer a thought or comment? Yeah. yeah, I mean, if
2: this
1: was really a book to argue the supremacy of God over idols, I mean, what type of power of an argument would that be if they're reviewing recent events. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this book wouldn't still be here. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It makes no sense. It's, it's nonsense if, 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 if uh, that's the case. Al? Um, what's the problem with the first uh,
2: thing they try to do? Like, you're saying this is an intentional fraud. What's the problem with that? I
0: mean, well, if they accept that, then, you know, what they would like to do is make this why this is an innocent you know, recounting history. You know, they don't want to necessarily say this is just a, a fraud. They don't want to say this is just an effort to try to, you know, <clears throat> pass this off in, in some sort of counterfeit sense. Most of them wouldn't like to go that far and just, you know, label it by those trash. But that you don't really have a middle option. It's kind of like people want to do with Jesus. They want to say he's just a good teacher. Well, no, he's not. You know, he's liar, a lunatic Lord. I mean, that that's, you know, you can't just say he's a good teacher. He to be God. So either he's crazy, or he's a fraud, or he's the Lord. You can't just say he's a good teacher. You can't just say this is good This is good history. If it's history, it's not good because it claims to be prediction. So they're just trying to be politically correct, I guess? I think, I, I think skeptics are always trying to undermine our faith in a real world. You know, man wants to think he's equal to God. There's probably a lot of motivation but I think that's part of it. And besides that, you know, uh, you can't uh, you can't get a doctor's degree without some original thesis. <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, push to try to come up with novel ideas. Uh, what's the evidence behind uh,
2: the fact that there are not? Three different writers of us. I think the evidence
0: behind it is just to see the internal consistency of in the book. No,
2: uh, I don't think we can, I don't know that
0: there's some kind of document that we can prove documentarily that existed before 531. But logic,
2: through reading it.
0: <laughs> yes. Then I, you know, I don't do, I've not done much with this, but if you really worked at trying to see the theme of Isaiah through the book there's a lot of things you could show that the parts of Isaiah have so much more commonality than say taking a chunk of Isaiah, a chunk of Jeremiah and a chunk of Ezekiel and trying to put it together. This doesn't seem like chunk stuff it seems like stuff that would come from the same author. That's a little bit harder to get your hands on but it's reasonable. I mean, that is the right. I mean, we would we would argue for one author in other books by seeing internal consistency, and comparing that with other books from random authors, and seeing you don't have that.
2: And their main argument, uh, as far as for the other side, is the fact that it's more reasonable. It's more logical. So if you really want to use logic and reading through this. Would also they would make some out. other
0: arguments. I think they would try to say that the fact that Isaiah takes a perspective of the Babylonian captivity means he wrote in the Babylonian captivity and some things like that. The, the fact that there are some passages that seem not to be applicable to the captivity or after also calls into question the idea of a second and third Isaiah. Shane? I'm going to come to all that for a
1: second. Um, I guess when I was thinking about desires, uh, God raised up desires for his purpose. I think we think about a lot of them, but I think we take ourselves really seriously, thinking that God needs us to teach, or God needs us to do this, or whatever. I need to, talk to this person, like this person, and do We're God's only servant. We're the only way that God can get this done. I think it just takes, we just need to trust one Lord in that. No, I got myself thinking, I don't want to talk slightly, what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? As long as we're saying the truth of the Lord, God's going to get His one cross. He can get His one cross that He wants to be across. we just speak what we know to be true and not
0: worry about how we're going to say it. Good point. Amen. John?
1: Um, with the appointing of Cyrus for this work, for this life, um, what can we include for God's appointing of us in our lives
2: and His hand in that?
0: Well, I think we can conclude that God is the one who's in control of things, and he'll use us as he sees fit, and we'll prepare ourselves to be a servant. sometimes they may um, may not have very good evidence to base that on. I wouldn't argue that God doesn't have purposes for us. The ultimate purpose is for us to serve him like his word says. The rest of it I'm not sure we'll know, but we can certainly do what God puts in our hand to do. Now he says in verse 8, drip down to heavens from above and let the clouds pour down righteousness. So we've got a downpour of righteousness that the earth opens up and bears the fruit of salvation. Righteousness springs up. So the heavens and the earth combine to raise a big crop of righteousness and salvation. And it all is because I, the Lord, have created that's a picturesque way of describing what he's just been saying as God through Cyrus brings his will to be accomplished
1: it says a lot like the flood shouting from above into the waters came up from to below it's just like a flood of righteousness covering the earth
0: yes God's purpose prevailed other comments through verse 8 All right, we're going to take a break uh, for about 15. Minutes. He's going to he's raising up Cyrus, his anointed one, to do all these great things. Think about how that might have sounded to Isaiah's Jewish audience. So 9 to 13. What
1: would have described with him? Formed him, Apollos, earth and pots. Does the clay say to him to form him, what are you making? Or your work has no hands. him who says to a father, What are you beginning? Or to a woman, What are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed him: Ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have served him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways low.
2: He shall build my city and set my exiles free,
0: not for price or reward, said the Lord of hosts. So does it make any sense to argue with your maker? Does it make any sense for the clay to argue with the potter? Why are you making me? Or what are you doing making me like this? You know, does it make any sense for the clay to say to the potter, You don't have any hands. You know, you don't have any ability to form me. Do you say to your father or to your mother, Well, what are you getting? What are you getting on birth? Do you you question your, your parents as to what they thought they were doing when they gave you birth? Et cetera. Now, obviously, those things are absurd. To deny the existence of the hands that formed you. To deny the power of those who begot you or whatever. Now the question is, why does he say that? Seems a little random. Here's what I think. I think when God announces his purpose through silence, that some Jews would object. That they would not be happy with God using a force carry out his purposes that they would start ar- arguing back with God and basically God saying who are you to pass judgment on my methods of accomplishing my purpose that's like somebody arguing with his potter or his parents do you think you can tell God how to run the world so who are you to quarrel with me I'll do this how I want to, thank you very much. And it's really not up to them to question it. They need to recognize who God is and submit to him. After all, verse 11, he is the Holy One of Israel. He is the maker of Israel. We ought to commit ourselves to him. He says in verse 12, I'm the creator. I made the earth. I created man, stretch out the heavens with my hands. All the host of the heavens, the stars. I not only have sovereignty in creation, God says I have control of history. Verse 13, I have aroused him in righteousness. Who's him? Cyrus. I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city. What city is that? Jerusalem. And will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward. God won't even have to pay him to do it. He'll just do it for free. <laughs> because God's the one in control. If God decides to raise up Cyrus, to free his people, and rebuild his city, who are they to question that? I think that's what he's saying in this section. Comments and questions. Okay. <laughs> Um, yes, Romans nine uses the clay and potter illustration. so and that is kind of talking about if mistaken, the I guess the, justifying why it is this God can reject his people that
1: haven't accepted Christ.
0: Yes. Exactly. How does God have the right to choose the Jews of faith and to reject the unbelieving Jews? At this point, point his one of the arguments he makes is it's God's grace he has the right to give it to whoever he wants. Who are we in the play to argue with the potter about who he decides to bless? <coughs> Matt? Not only did God not you know, have
2: to pay or make people
1: pay but you to get funds, he provides for them to be paid get up on When Ezra said, go free, he sends them with all this stuff. Yes. You know, go rebuild the temple and go start your
2: life
1: back. And what a great salvation that God doesn't just let us free. He lets us free. What? I mean, think about the people
0: in yeah. God didn't just, just free them. He freed them and eluded the Egyptians, too. Absolutely, yeah. And various times in the post-captivity period they tapped into the royal Persian <laughs> treasury for their projects of rebuilding and so forth. So that's a good point. Very good point.
1: Uh, what is he saying in verse 11 ask you
2: other things to come concerning my sons and, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands what is he trying to say there? yeah that's a good
0: question I'm not confident about that committing to me the work of my hands may be the idea of let him decide you just commit yourself to him uh, but the first part uh, there's various understandings that I'm not sure oh, I'll Pass it around. of quarreling with the potter it makes me
1: think of the batik. Now, Habakkuk did try to quarrel a
0: little bit but then he you know, remained silent and accepted God's answer and created this. That's almost like you can't do that God. You can't be using a worse nation to punish Judah. God can do whatever he wants to. Who our we to I don't
1: know if there's any connection with it but just having just talked about the idols man made that idol and can make it say whatever he wants to say now God's saying look you don't tell me the maker the true maker what what I'm going to do you can tell your idols that if you want or make them say what you want
0: we really don't recognize who God is when we try to do that we make him into some sort of creation of ours instead of recognizing his independence and greatness and that he made us God
1: wouldn't want me to do this or God would <laughs> God wants me to be happy here things like
0: that yes We make our own God when we construct to God according to our desires instead of allowing him to determine who he is. You know, man man just more or less makes God the way he wants God to be. That's really an idol in and of itself. Other comments? Okay, um, 14 to 19.
1: Thus says the Lord: The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, will come over to you and be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you, and there is none else, no other God. Truly, you are a God who hides Himself. O oh God of Israel, save you. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them, the manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create a waste place but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark name. I do not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in a waste place. I, the
0: Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Quite a statement in verse 14. What would these men of other nations, These great men of other nations do? Come over and bow down. To these Jews. They're going to come to you. They're going to be yours. They're going to bow down to you. They're going to make supplication to you. Now that's quite a shift in direction. Back in chapter 30 last year, we looked at how the Jews would send brides to Egypt to try to beg their help and then to form some sort of mutual pact of defense. Now the nations are coming to the Jews with gifts, begging for help. Um, now why is it that these nations would be flocking to the Jews yes a recognition that God was present with them now isn't that exactly what's happened are we Jews most of us don't look like it anyway Uh, who have we come to Abraham, Jesus for that matter the apostles, Jews we have come to God through Jews that God has uh, used to reveal himself to us I, I might compare verse 14 for a moment with 1 Corinthians chapter 14 which I think has a similar idea and might have a good lesson for us 1 Corinthians 14, 24, 25 if all prophesied. And an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters. He is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Now, obviously, that's in the context of prophesying. But the idea is that when we submit to observe God properly, others will be able to see the light of God in us. And we'll be able to come to worship God through our life, through our example. That's what you see here as well. The idea is God will bless his people so that the nations will come to God through them. Comments or thoughts on 14? Yes, Tim? Do you think this is
1: strictly uh, reference to uh, spiritual kingdom or is this-
0: I think it's mostly a reference to the spiritual kingdom. I hesitate ever almost to say that there is not a pre- preliminary foreshadowing. But I'm not sure if foreshadowing is all that clear to me here. So He says, you know, that um, the idols, they'll be humiliated. You know, the, the idolaters will, will be put to shame because their God can't do anything. Israel will be saved with an everlasting shame, salvation, and not be put to shame or humiliated. I mean, you know, you worship the idols, the idol ends up letting you down when you need salvation. You worship God, he'll never let you down. He'll always be there and deliver. He is the Lord, and how many times are we going to say this? The point of all this is to see who God is. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it. Now, he has said so many times, God is the creator. that, That means something. If God is the creator, we need to respect him and trust him and entrust ourselves to him and worship him. It being creator is a very significant point. We need to see him that way. He says, I am the Lord and there is none else. And in verse 19, I've not spoken in secret in some dark land. God spoke clearly. You know, the heathen oracles would, would often come up with some sort of an ambiguous statement. Did you ever read uh, Chinese Fortune Cookie? You no, know, or ever read your horoscope or whatever? you know, there will be some great tragedy in your life, you know, you'll, you'll have success in your chosen endeavor, uh, or whatever. I mean, you know, it's vague, it's ambiguous, it could be, I mean, anybody can pick it up, and they can see a fulfillment of that in them. God would love that. I mean, God doesn't just say, uh, there's going to be some big changes occurring in your future, Israel. You know, he says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus, He's going to send you back home and rebuild your city. Now that's a lot different than the vague ambiguities of the psychics and the uh, uh, sorcerers and the astrologers and and whatever else. God speaks clearly. So God is the great God who will save his people, who will bring others through his people to come to him. And he will not let us down. Comments or questions? Sorry.
2: Gary, last time we went out after the study at, at there on Romans at Lakeview, went to a Chinese restaurant. I did get a fortune cookie. I saved it because it was true. Oh wow! It said many new friends will be attracted to your friendly and charming ways.
0: <laughs> it had to be true, so but I, they're not all. Uh, so <laughs> they're not all wrong. <laughs> so I keep that my wallet. <laughs> now, if you ever the majority of those are positive. <laughs> <laughs> they rarely say, many people will be repulsed by your <laughs> Better. Um, I guess maybe I'm just a little bit confused. Verse 15 says, You are a God who hides himself. And then in verse 19 it says, I have not spoken in secret. What does that mean
1: or what's the difference?
0: Yeah, I, I, verse 15, I think the idea is the salvation came sort of unexpectedly. <laughs> Suddenly God provided what they weren't even looking for. And, but I think 19 is just that God reveals his will, clearly. Right. You, you can tell the difference in, uh, even the German, between the false prophets and the good prophets. The false prophets say, you're going to be
1: saved, I'm going to be saved, but the good prophets always were very specific of what was going to happen. Yes. Other thoughts? Can you, can you a little about verse 19? Just, uh, I didn't speak darkness, but then... I did not
0: say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. How are those connected? Yeah, in the New York Standard, it's I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. Uh, it seems to me like he's saying God uh, wants him, Israel to seek him in a place that is blessed, in a place that's inhabited. Uh, he didn't create the earth to be a waste place in verse 18, and so he's not going to provide the destiny for his people in a waste place, in a, a deserted, empty place. Uh, I, I don't know if I've got the whole gist of that, but that's just the idea. Okay, twenty to twenty-five.
2: Gather yourself in company, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have the knowledge carry about their wood, wooden idol, and they pray to God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. and hey, Indeed, let me consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They say to me, Only in the Lord our righteousness and strength, men will come to Him, and all who are angry at Him will put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will
0: give glory. So, what does He encourage in twenty and twenty-one? What does he challenge? No, like, keep your what? Keep praying to your idols. Yeah, pray to your idols. Bring your evidence or Compare. Yeah, and not just one at a time. Gather together. You know, maybe if you all get together, you'll be able to make a better case. You know, put your heads together. Uh, you know, you guys who carry about your wooden idol. Is there anything a little weird about that? You know, you have to carry lug around your God. You know? That shouldn't quite work that way. These, and pray to a God who cannot save. You know, the idols are non-saving. They're non-saving. Uh, the, I think the, the right uh, word there is non-salvific, but we don't use that word very often. I think that was in the dictionary. They're they're, they're inherently incapable of saving. Uh, you know, they're not you know, your worshipers have to carry So So you set forth your case. You consult together who is it that has been able to predict the future and carry it out. I, the Lord, no other God, none except me. Right back to that same point. He's just challenging that You show me one time. You show me one God who's ever predicted anything and carried it out. I am the only one. So turn to me and be saved. Who does he invite to turn to him and be saved? All of there. Everyone. Everywhere, all the ends of the earth. Uh, Anyone can be saved. The offer is for all. Because he is the only God. So there's no salvation anywhere else. I don't care where you come from. There's no other God to save you. Um, And and he's sworn that every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Does that remind you of anything? Philippians 2, spoken about Jesus, again, Jesus is the God of Isaiah 40 to 48. I don't mean by that that there is only one personality in the Godhead or anything like that. But I believe that this God, that Jesus is a part of this God that we're looking at in Isaiah 45. He is the one that everyone will bow down to. They will say of me only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. The, the thing that makes Israel Israel, the thing that makes them successful is their orientation toward God. You don't glory in your own strength, you don't rely on your own counsel and ability in the Lord. There is nothing else. There is not one Israelite who will be justified outside of the Lord. Now, it's interesting, in my judgment, in verse 25, the use of all the offspring of Israel. Is it true that all the offspring of Israel will be justified? There are not not going to be any unsaved Jews. Here with Romans 11.26 is this passage. What's he saying here? Is he trying to say that there's no unjustified Jews? That's true. not sure that's adequate. It all have the opportunity. It all have the opportunity, Dixon.
1: They the real Jews, like Paul talking about Yesterday
2: or last night, we were looking at some of earlier chapters. To me, it, it seemed to
0: imply Israel being the sincere the real Jews, the remnants. I, exactly. I think that's exactly what you've got. You know, all Israel is not the unbelieving mass that's cut off. All Israel are those who are of the faith of Abraham, those who truly trust in God. There's a number of passages where God distinguishes between Israel and Israel. And here he's looking at the true Israel. We were looking last night, for example, at the end of 42 and the first part of 43, where they're 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 burned up in the fire and the fire doesn't scorch them. Well, we've got the two-fold definition of Israel: the unbelievers, and then the true Israel that are really God's people. So I think here all the offspring of Israel means all the real offspring of Israel. Yes, Tim. Romans 11.26 26. I think that's his point there also. When he says that all Israel will be saved in Romans 11.26 26, I don't believe he means all the physical descendants of Abraham, but all those who are truly Israel. As he said back in Romans 9, they're not all Israel who are of Israel. Romans 9, 6 to 8. Yeah, that whole the whole argument Romans nine through eleven has several intriguing parallels to Isaiah and several citations from Isaiah. He makes that point earlier in Romans think like two or three. He does in two twenty-eight and twenty-nine to some extent makes said uh, um, in verse
2: twenty-four he says, will come we're angry and ashamed. I'm thinking that it's referring that God's just referring to himself in the third person. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yes. I think so. Verse
2: 23, what does it mean
0: when he says, a word that shall not not return? Well, he's saying that what he says will happen. You know, I mean, like if you say something's going to happen, And it doesn't happen. It's like the word came back to you without accomplishing its purpose. He's saying, when my word goes out, it will reach its fulfillment. It won't come back. It won't boomerang back to me. He'll say that a lot in chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. Uh, And and so his point is, this is really going to happen. Everybody really will submit to me. We use the term, have to eat our words. Yes, good point, yeah. Other questions and comments, Jake. Um, in verses
2: 23 and 24, uh, this, this idea of not all Jews are going to come to um, Not every one of them were going to say. But
1: the fact in verse 23 says that to me, every knee shall bow. Whether they want to bow or not, they're going to. Whether they want to come to it or not, they're going to come to this um, They were going to come, and it's the same way it does. There's a lot of people that say, oh, we no God, to go out believe in God. Whether they don't believe him or not,
0: they are still his children. They will be. you. Well, they will submit to him. They will confess him. They won't be justified in glory, as he in 25. Does. But yes, everybody will bow their knee before God. So if it. you
1: recognize him on this day, in this last we, we will
0: recognize him in that day. Yeah, exactly right. There will be no rebels on the judgment day. No atheists there either. <laughs>